Big Fluff. You've done terrible things in England. So terrible that you fled the country. And I'm ashamed to say that Her Majesty's government is willing to offer you amnesty in return for your services. You want to go home. Home. Home's where the heart is, that's what they say. And I have been missing London so. Its sorrow is as sweet to me as a rare wine. I'm yours. Hey everybody, I'm Joel Murphy. And I'm Andy McIntyre. And this is Silver Linings Playback, the podcast where we revisit maligned movies and look for a silver lining. Uh, and sometimes it's easier than other times. And, and this week, we got, one of, we got a time. We got a time this week, an extraordinary time. <laughs> a beleaguered extraordinary time, <laughs> if you will. I let me ask. So I'm gonna curious. So we're we're doing League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, uh, or the, LXG, or LXG if you're nasty. And uh, I'm I'm curious because when we were brainstorming, I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but this was one you suggested, and so I am curious. <laughs> uh, wh- why this came to mind, except for the fact that the obvious fact of it's available on streaming services. So, <laughs> um. So the reason I picked this one is we were talking about uh, franchise starting movies uh, and this was sort of right at the very early stages of like the comic book movie boom in the early 2000s, early to mid like aughts, I guess. Uh, And this movie went over like a wet fart, Um, (laughs) you know, critically, commercially and everything. So... I don't know. I thought it really fit the bill to take a look to see if there's anything, anything, you know, any silver linings to this movie that is, um, it is the last live action movie that Sean Connery did. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. Like when we talk about franchise starting, this was a career ending movie. And honestly, I do want to talk a bit about the, uh, the sort of larger picture of the world of this movie. Cause I did look some of this up. Uh, he was quoted when he retired uh, of saying, I'm fed up with the idiots, the ever widening gap between the people who know how to make movies and the people who greenlight the movies. Uh, <laughs> and he didn't specifically mention this movie, but this was the last film that he did. And there are a lot of reports, if you start digging into it, of the fact that it was a very troubled shoot. He did not get along uh, with uh, Stephen Norrington, who is the director, apparently there's like rumors that they came to blows in yeah. Malta over an elephant gun dispute. <laughs> yeah, there's 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 a lot to go on with this. Uh, speaking of career ending, uh, Stephen Norrington, who had a decent amount of buzz for de- uh, directing Blade Two, which was is considered the best Blade movie, I guess. I'd By a push, lot of people. Yeah, I always, I, I, I prefer the original flavor Blade, but uh, Blade Two is great. I, I Blade no, Two is great. Yeah, um, I think I also prefer the the Guillermo del Toro one. Um, 
Yeah, which are... Yeah. Wait, hold on. I think we were saying this backwards. I think he did the first one. I think Guillermo del Toro did the second one. Oh, you uh, might be right. But anyway, I... Either I like, way, he yeah. directed a Blade movie and he had a lot of buzz for yeah. directing Blade. Um, Wesley Snipes' Blade tr- series. And uh, then he did this movie and he hasn't directed any feature-length films since. Yeah, no, I mean, like I said, it was a very troubled uh, production from what I was reading they there was a flood at one point that damaged a lot of their sets and destroyed the submarine in this movie. Uh, I did find very hilariously there's an Entertainment Weekly article where they invited a reporter to the set, and apparently everyone was so put out that they didn't care to hide how unhappy they were. Uh, like this is one of the quotes I found. Uh, Connery isn't very pleased with how this is going. Understates a crew member. He's not used to being kept waiting on a movie set. I mean, he's 72 years old and he's Sean Connery. And then another one of the quotes in the movie, uh, is I've never been on a set as tense as this offers a frazzled stagehand. Everybody just wants to go home. (laughs) So, yeah, it sounds like it was a nightmare to film. Uh, It was obviously enough to make Sean Connery reconsider acting as a profession, like in his 70s. I also, one more side note about, because the Sean Connery stuff is very fascinating to me. One of the other things I found was apparently he also said, like when he was talking about retiring, he was offered the role of Gandalf in Lord of the Rings, but he turned that down because he didn't really understand the movie or the part. Then he was also offered the part of the architect in yeah. the matrix reloaded, which he also didn't understand and passed on. So like, I kind of got the vibe reading stuff that he did this movie, not because he thought it was good, but because he was like, well, I don't know what's good anymore. So this one will probably work. Yeah. I mean, if he figured, you know, fool me once, shame on you, fool me <laughs> twice, shame on me, I guess. Uh, we could talk about the quality of uh, the Matrix Reloaded. Um, yeah, it's not like he was offered Morpheus in the first Matrix. Like it's Gandalf right. is definitely the more prestigious. And honestly, I don't fault him. You know, he might have been in his seventies, but me as a young man when that movie came out, I also didn't understand the part of the architect in Matrix Reloaded. So <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't fault him for that at all. Yeah, um, all of that goes. Um, but yeah, it ended his career. And I mean, honestly, nobody, um, and granted, I don't keep a lot of tabs on Bollywood, but um, most of the stars, like they were sort of had a little buzz at the time of this movie and they've all sort of gone away and none of them really did much yeah, afterwards. There was, there was also, I, I feel bad I, I didn't, I don't think I put her name down in my notes, but I also read there was one particular actress who was in the promotional material for this movie and then was subsequently edited out of it to the point that she was in a fight scene and they CGI'd who she was into someone else to completely remove her from the movie for some reason. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's... um, I will say... One thing I will say about this movie is that like you read all this backstage, behind-the-scenes drama... It didn't seem like the actors in it were having a miserable time. No, I mean, the movie is very competently made. Like, it doesn't come across as amateur, you know, that you might expect. Like, it it definitely doesn't... uh, Well, and it's interesting, too, because some of the stuff I read about the directing and about Stephen Norrington is, like, some of the frustration, I guess, with Sean Connery 
and the waiting came from the idea that he was over prepared like that he felt like he was doing too many camera setups and there was too much coverage and too much footage being shot that wasn't necessary so it, it like i think that's why the movie hides it well is that it actually it seems like a lot of the disputes came out of the fact that norrington was like really being overly careful probably so maybe making his actors miserable uh but definitely not um you know, not at the, you know, not causing the the footage to suffer. Like he was making sure to get his shots in. Yeah. Um, the weird thing was that he was like frustrating and um, infuriating his actors, but not to generate that sort of emotion on the screen the way like Stanley Kubrick did in The Shining. Yeah. He just like tortured Shelley Long. <laughs> yeah. No, it just or comes. Shelley ac- Duvall. Sorry. Uh, yeah. It just comes across as, you know, like it kind of just feels a little lifeless i felt like this movie like it feels very competently made but just it, it lacks that je ne sais quoi if you will yeah i think i think that's like the two-word review of this movie for me is it's fine yeah i actually i speaking i did find the roger ebert review which i enjoyed for this oh. film when it came out Uh, He said, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen assembles a splendid team of heroes to battle a plan for world domination. And then, just when it seems to be a a real corker of an adventure movie, plunges into incomprehensible action, idiotic dialogue, inexplicable motivations, causes without effects, effects without causes, and general lunacy. What a mess. That's why he was the best. Cats and cats and dogs living together. Mass Mass hysteria. hysteria. Yeah, it's honestly that might be a better review than this movie deserves. But I'd say that kind of hits at it. Like it watching. I'd never seen this movie before. Uh, We watched it for this. I thought I had seen it. um, And I think I'd probably seen bits and pieces on TV here and there. Like when it was on. I remember being on like TBS or TNT a bunch like decade ago. Um, but I never watched it, but this is the first time watching it, like, you know, start to finish in order and all that too. So, and that's part of it too. I I don't know, you know, I can't really say because I don't remember at this point, I I definitely don't remember like being excited for this movie coming out. I remember that it existed. I remember it being advertised, but I definitely didn't go to see it in the theater. So I don't really know, you know, maybe just because it was so troubled, it just became one of those movies that is just sort of released and forgotten, you know, even though there was a lot of money invested in it for sure. Yeah. And it was based on a pretty popular comic book series that had, um, you know, done has won awards for it. It's an, uh, it's an Alan Moore comic book, uh, the league of extraordinary gentlemen, which I, um, I, if we could detour just one more time, since, <laughs> since you brought him up, I would feel remiss doing this entire episode without taking a little bit of time. Uh, to talk about Alan Moore because look I don't know where we're going to land on this show I don't know where we're going to decide in the end but for sure an early silver lining for me is anytime anyone adapts anything that Alan Moore does is always hilarious Uh, for people who don't know Alan Moore is kind of a I would almost say like a mythological figure in comic books. He's a very well-known figure. Uh, he yeah. created Watchmen or co- I should say co-created. I'm bad at that as everyone else. Like, cause he, he's a writer. Obviously there are illustrators that also deserve uh, the credit for creating these things, but he's the co-creator of Watchmen. Uh, he did this league of extraordinary gentlemen. V for Vendetta. Uh, he also did V for Vendetta. So he's done a lot of projects that have been very high profile and have been, did he, d- he did a, what was the popular Batman arc that he did? 
Didn't he do? Uh, he did the killing joke. That's yeah. him. Uh, and I feel like he did something else. But uh, but the killing joke is obviously a, a very famous Batman movie that was also adapted into an animated movie. Uh, yeah. So Alan Moore has done a lot in comics. He is uh, a kind of unhinged wizard man. If you yeah. dig into any of his personal life, he has a very crazy beard. Uh, he basically spends a lot of time, you know, sort of being underground and writing, and then he'll pop up for interviews or, or publicity. And it's always worth it and always fascinating. He also tends to like this. I think League of Extraordinary Gentlemen is a perfect example of like everything that encapsulates Alan Moore, which is he gets very mad when people adapt his material but league of extraordinary gentlemen as people have often pointed out isn't original material all of the characters are repurposed characters that were not created by alan moore that he does not like he just is using royalty free <laughs> characters right. from like lapsed copyright material uh to create this pastiche of you know these characters this sort of victorian era justice league is the is the short is the elevator pitch but then getting mad <laughs> that someone would pay him money to adapt that into another medium so there, there's just this kind of bizarre like uh that that's just his jam and uh there was i i really enjoyed this uh don murphy who was the producer of this film who was asked about alan moore uh, you know, getting upset about them making this movie, called him a hypocrite and a liar and said, he's an old man who smokes too much hash and prays to a lizard god. Don't buy his bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and this is also the last uh, of his intellectual property, if you even want to call it that, that his name appears on in the movies because yeah. he refused to have his name appear on anything Watchmen related. Um because if you watch like the show or the Zack Snyder movie, um, it all says created by uh, David Gibbons. Mm -hmm. uh, David Gibbons, who seems excited to have his material adapted, like maybe not excited, know, but much more open. Okay, to at it. least okay with it. Yeah. Um, and a V for Vendetta, his name appears nowhere anywhere on that. Yeah. Um, and, and that. It, yeah. Well, it's funny too because I am slightly sympathetic to Alan Moore in regards to this particular adaptation because uh, they bought the concept but actually were making this movie at the same time that the comic series was being written. So they basically bought like what you're saying the pitch for Victorian era Justice League and then it doesn't bear a lot of resemblance to the source material. No, it doesn't. So um, he has that <laughs> for sure. Yeah, that's that's one thing like, you know, it's it's I think it's a bad argument when people are like, oh, well, like the source materials better. The book's better that this is better because everything's different mm -hmm. and you can't you can't just put the words on the screen like in, to make go from like book to movie. Even with comic books, like there's things you can do in comic books that you just you can't put exactly on screen. Things that look good in you know the three color page don't look as good on screen. Um, Apocalypse is a great example of that. <laughs> oh yeah, no for sure. You know, and, th and then it's just you also if you actually sit down and you read a comic book story, they tend to be much more 
they're not written in the same pace as a movie. They, they tend to be more rambling and have tangents and side stories. And you had to read six different comic series to get the whole thing. And so each one, you know, one is going to be from Robin's perspective and one is going to be from Batman's perspective. And one is going to be Catwoman because they all have their own series and they want you to buy all of them. Uh, so it's not going to work the same way. And, you know, like it is the job. I also like personally, I don't want to just see an adaptation of a comic that I've already read. Like I, I'm more interested in, you know, if you can do civil war, like you're calling it civil war, but it, it's, it wasn't very much like the comics, but it was the same spirit as these characters are fighting or right. the, the motivations were different. The sides were different. Yeah. yeah. Or dark Knight rises. Like you made a, a movie where Bane is a badass who breaks Batman's back, which is the spirit of Nightfall, but you didn't just make Nightfall again. You know, like, I'm I'm more interested in stuff like that that sort of takes these ideas and yeah. repurposes Batman them. Batman Begins isn't Batman Year One. Yeah. You know, it's influenced by that and the Long Halloween and things like that, but it's not the same thing. I mean, even Lord of the Rings, which I would say is one of the more faithful adaptations of any material, like it still changes things to make it more cinematic. You know, it moves things around. It sets the plot in an order that makes sense cinematically. Um, and, you know, you're going to hear people like, oh, they did a bit of a It's like, yeah, but I don't know. I love those movies and they're great. No, I think the changes are great. And, and I honestly kind of like it's one of the few things where I, I actively prefer the films to the books. I think that a lot of the changes they made were for the better. And I don't need uh, to read about the months that the hobbits spent selling their houses before they went on the adventure, you know, or I, I know there's a lot of Tom Riddle heads out there, but like I, I did stories kind of nothing. So <laughs> yeah, I know we're, it's, that's a whole different can of worms that I'm I'm opening. But but at the same time, there's going too far the other way, almost where uh, they're just like, yeah, we're going to call it an adaptation, but we're not going to adapt it. We're just going to maybe take the broad theme and do our own thing with it. And that sometimes angers me in movies. Well, but then you get into why did you buy the thing? <laughs> like, right. Exactly. You um, know? Yeah. Like you just bought a name to, to use the name to sell it, but you're not actually writing a story. Yeah. Like, you know, comic book characters in, in particular tend to be pretty malleable. You know, they kind of yeah. fit in a lot of different genres and, and, you know, realities. Batman probably is the best example of that. Like, of like Batman can work as campy or he can work as very gritty and serious and everywhere in between. Cause like the archetype is just guy with gadgets who, you know, billionaire with muscles that beats up. Yeah. Criminals. So like the clearer that the concept is, the more easy it is to sort of like put it into different realities. Uh, but yeah, like it still has to be true to the spirit of the thing. You have to, as someone, if you read, the comics, you have to recognize, like, this is similar to the comics, or this understands the comics, at least. And I think, like, the Watchmen HBO series is a good example, too, of, like, they went in a very different direction, uh, in kind of a polarizing direction, but in a direction that I really enjoyed, in terms of doing something that feels like Watchmen, but doesn't feel like you're just adapting the comics. Right, whereas, like, the Zack Snyder Watchmen movie... Um, there's really great, uh, wisecrack YouTube series where they kind of go, it's called deep or dumb. And they kind of go into like, is, is Watchmen is the Watchmen movies. Are they deep or are they dumb? 
and I fall on the dumb side of things. I think they're kind of dumb, but um, a lot of it was Zack Snyder trying to like panel for panel recreate a lot of things. Yeah, and that stuff felt really soulless to me. It no, for sure, it felt soulless. Also, hashtag release the alien squid cut. Uh, just to get <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if we could get the alien squid cut, um, yeah, and that's that's those are the things that sort of bother me when it's like. There's no reason to change things, but they change like things that could have been adapted. Like you could have done the giant squid and it makes a lot more sense to do the giant squid yeah, than well, what they did. And weirdly, the HBO series did the giant squid in its own way, in a way that worked. Yeah. Um, you know, um, this is this is about League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Uh, so Clearly. <laughs> that's what we're talking about. Um, so. The movie, like we said, is a sort of Victorian era hero Justice League where they assemble uh, all of these great sort of, um, you know, free license characters (laughs) from uh, this sort of the late 1800s, early 1900s from fiction and things like that. And they put them, smash them all together and put them in an adventure and... um, you know, it's a movie. Here, real quick, <laughs> let's see if we can do this from memory. Uh, okay. You have Sean Connery. Uh, I, he's he's not... He's an original character, right? Like, unless no, I he's miss- Alan, Alan Quartermain, who is, in fact, a uh, is a very kind of like pulp novel type character. Um, oh. So he has an actual... Their actual literary basis for Alan Quartermain. Okay, we'll see. I didn't um, even and there know been that. Other, there have been other Alan Quartermain movies, as a matter of fact. Well, there you go. So I didn't even recognize him. So you, okay. So you have him, Alan Quartermain. Then you have uh, Vampire Lady. You have Mina Harker, uh, yeah. who is one of the characters. She is Jonathan Harker, sort of the lead character of the Dracula novel's wife. Yeah. And uh, she almost gets turned into a vampire through the course of the book. And they, of course, are able to vanquish Dracula before that happens spoilers for a century-old novel that was also Um, i I did read when i was reading stuff about this movie that that's one of the comic book things is that she's not actually a vampire right in the comics uh yes then you have dorian gray uh from portrait of fame (laughs) yes Uh, from the from the picture of dorian gray fame by oscar wilde uh excellent book if you want to read a good great book really great book excellent book and they really man they took that book and really made that a character yep (laughs) they did they found a way to make him a superhero uh and then you got uh jekyll and hyde were in there um the the famous book the strange case of dr jekyll and mr hyde by robert lewis stevenson mm -hmm. uh then uh they put tom sawyer which was another movie choice yeah, they they adapted a Rush song for the movie. I thought that was a weird, <laughs> a weird thing to happen. I thought but, everything with Tom Sawyer was very bizarre in this movie. <laughs> yeah, he seemed confused as to why he was there. <laughs> yeah, he seemed that, he, and, and and just the fact because like you're like, wait, Tom Sawyer's just a kid who goes on a rafting trip with his more charismatic friend, and you'd be correct. But this is Tom Sawyer as an adult who becomes a U.S. Secret Service agent. Which we all assume that he would. I think if you oh, read course. the novel, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, um, it's, it's the sequel that we didn't know we needed. Uh, also, there's The Invisible Man yep. uh, is in there. Uh, I feel like I'm forgetting someone from the Captain team. Captain Nemo from oh, 20,000 yeah. Leagues Under the Sea. Yeah, Captain Nemo, who g- gave us the sub that uh, was wrecked in real production. And, right, and defies all sorts of size and physics. 
There's that. And then there's, I mean, spoiler alert. If you've made it this far, I don't think you care about spoilers. But uh, the villain is first implied. It's supposed to be the Phantom of the Opera, right? That was what right. we're supposed it's to think. It's implied that Phantom of the Opera. Because they just call him the Phantom. And then it's revealed. With an F, but you'd never know that. Yeah, why would you know that? <laughs> uh, like, it's in the credits, it's with an F. But yeah. it's the Phantom of the Opera, theoretically. And then it's... From the book. But it's revealed that it's not the Phantom. It's actually Moriarty, the famous villain of Sherlock Holmes. Right. So Who's weird that he um, is royalty free, but Sherlock Holmes isn't, I think. I don't know. Yeah, I don't. Th- actually, might... Sherlock Holmes, you might be able might actually be royalty free because like that would explain how Many... the Will Ferrell Giants John C. Riley movie was able to get made a couple years ago. And... Well, and there's like 50 TV series now. And there's so know. many. Yeah, that all. Uh, but yeah, so I think that's everybody. Those are all the uh, repurposed characters. The The plot. Oh, there's even another subtle one. Um, Captain Nemo's first mate is Ishmael from Moby oh, Dick. Yeah. Yeah. For I, no reason. For no reason, for sure. Uh, yeah, so you, we get all these characters. It kind of starts I'm with Roger Ebert as to like just a pretty simple like putting the band together plot line like we we get alan quartermain who just wants to hang out in africa with his weird double that he uses to avoid having conversations with people apparently but then you know that didn't work out so then he's he's put into the story and then but pretty much once the twist happened like i was tracking with this movie and i was like okay i get what we're doing there's a there's gonna be world war one is gonna happen and the phantom is trying to cause it and our heroes are trying to stop it. That's pretty simple. Also, there's a yep. tank now. So they got tanks and stuff. Uh, and uh, so that all works. And then it, when we get to the reveal that they try to do the thing that like this was actually Moriarty's plan was to put them all together as a team so that he could steal their DNA and make super soldiers. Yep. Which... Oh, and Moriarty was also the uh, the M. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That is, so yes, he was everybody. <laughs> uh, um, was, but then, yeah. So all of that happens, and then, but like, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> the idea doesn't make sense because if he just need, like, he could have just gone around getting samples of their DNA way easier than he did. And then to put them on his own scent to put them on his own scent and to like galvanize them together <laughs> to like yeah it's it's a bad plan yeah it, it's not a good plan uh and obviously fails spectacularly yep and uh so that's the movie and uh uh, clearly Sean Connery wanted to make sure that he didn't have to do the sequel. I'd be curious when they wrote in, uh, killing him off at the end. Also spoiler, but was oh, well, that post credit scene oh, I... where he gets resurrected? Well, it's, does he Imply actually, that he gets, yeah, 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 yeah that he's about to get resurrected. There isn't yeah. a, yeah, because the, he can't die because he made a deal with Africa to not die. And he seems to be being brought back. But I also kind of read that as like Sean Connery, not wanting to do the sequel. Yeah, I'm sure that they gave once they realized how fraught everything was, it like gave them an out. 
Yeah, should he not want to appear? Or who knows, they could have done something ridiculous in a world where this did well enough to get a sequel. They could have just had a different actor <laughs> playing the part. And been yeah. like, he's so changed now. He came back, but in the body of Ian McKellen. <laughs> <laughs> or they could have gotten the actor that played the architect in uh, Matrix Reloaded. Yeah, it also would have been good. Because I remember watching that movie and being like, that should be Sean Connery, shouldn't it? I feel that like not knowing about it, but yeah, like, it did feel like it, it felt like it should be someone like it, it should have landed more than it did. I also would have like that weird wordy dialogue that he gives the architect would have felt better in that the Sean Connery brogue for sure. Yes. A hundred percent. Um, so yeah, that's kind of the movie and it didn't get any sequels. Um, did poorly at the box office. Um, did poorly in the hearts and minds of all people involved with the production in that Alan Moore never attached his name to another bit of his property. Sean Connery stopped acting in live action. Uh, Stephen Norrington stopped directing. The rest of the cast disappeared. Sort of vanished. Um, <laughs> that included people like Peter Wilson and Shane West, who uh, Shane West was definitely something of a teen heartthrob at the time. Uh, Peter Wilson was popular from the USA show La Femme Nikita. So, you know, there are people that had some renown um, and that none of them have really done much or none of them like rose any higher or than they were before the movie. Cause like there are people like Richard Roxburgh and Jason Fleming and things are still, you know, doing work today, but that is a pretty spectacular failure of a movie to have yeah. that sweeping of a consequence that so many careers were uh, destroyed, which I mean is crazy because it doesn't seem that bad. <laughs> like, it's, like it, the, it's not as bad as like when you, if you were to say, Oh God, there's this movie. It, like because of this movie, Sean Connery stopped acting. The yeah. director stopped directing. The writer of the comic book that had nothing to do with the production of the film was like, I am never <laughs> going to let my name be attached to an adaptation again. Um, and all of that, you would think this movie would be an absolutely unwatchable, soulless, lifeless, terrible mess. And it's not that bad. It's not, you know, like it's, it's fine. Yeah. So there, <laughs> I mean... <laughs> I don't that feels like a cop out silver lining but I suppose no. that's the start of a silver lining in it's the that start of a sil- it's not as bad as you would think based on all available evidence. Yeah, I mean that that is definitely the start <laughs> of a silver lining. Um it's it's you know it's it's on Hulu so you can watch it and and judge for yourself but like there are some cool action sequences. Uh the special effects are super dated. Um, which weren't even necessarily great for the time. The Invisible Man stuff I thought was pretty cool. I, I was going to say, they did that yeah. was really cool. Invisible um, Man's pretty seamless. Uh, Hyde is pretty bad. Yeah, especially when he's transforming underwater in the one yeah. scene. Like, yeah. that's really bad. Um, but the Invisible Man stuff was cool the way, like, I mean, it looked a little cheesy when he was invisible and, like, there'd be, like, a floating cup or something like that. But, yeah, the um, stuff that, where you could see through his head to the background, like, kind of stuff. But, like, like he would put on makeup so you could, like, yeah. register that he, where he was and, like, his eyes would still be hollow and you could, like, see through it. Like, that was pretty cool. Um, 
the fight scenes for the most part are pretty good. Like the choreography and everything is, is pretty good. Yeah. Kind of forgettable, but not bad. No, it's not like it's yeah, it's fine. I mean, that's sort of the general tone. Um, they do a weird like father son relationship with Quartermain and, uh, Tom Sawyer. Yeah. And... To the point that like, I almost expected that watching it, that he was going to be his son. Like I, I didn't know how that would make any sense based on the fact. No, because Tom Sawyer has parents. But it did kind of have that vibe that I almost expected that to to happen. But he was the son he never had. Yeah. Um, like one of the big glaring like bad things about the movie was the sub that was simultaneously like so huge that it like almost registered from space in the ocean. Yeah. could also, also navigate the canals of Venice that are not deep. Yeah. The, no, the sub didn't make a lot of sense and didn't really add anything to the story either. You know, like it didn't, I don't know why they had a sub. They, it wasn't used in any way. Like it was just was where they hung out. And it was, it was how they got from one place to another quickly. Cause it was very fast. But you could have done that with a flying ship or like, I mean, it's fine that it's a sub, but like you just didn't use it very interestingly. Yeah. And I guess it was just another way to shoehorn in another uh, Victorian era character. And, you know, this is one of the only times that Captain Nemo is appropriately portrayed as someone of South Asian descent. So that's kind of cool. Hey, um, the, well, then we did it. There's your silver <laughs> lining is uh, culturally appropriate casting <laughs> of Nemo. You know, they didn't whitewash Nemo the way in almost every other iteration, like the Disney movie and all that. So that's that's a thing. Yeah, no, that's that's for sure a thing. <laughs> Yeah, I'm really trying. Like, I I don't know. I, I don't like I want more to say about this movie. I mean, it's a silver lining in that I really enjoyed reading all this behind the scenes stuff about this. Uh, yeah, the, the story of this movie is fascinating. I like, honestly and all the things that happened around it. I kind of want someone to make like a heart of darkness, you know, style of documentary about the filming of this movie that probably would true to heart of darkness be much better than this movie. But like, if you could get everyone reassembled to tell the story, I want to hear about this fist fight. Like, yeah, I mean, it sounds um, good. Also, did Sean Connery win? I feel like he probably I'm won. sure he won. Yeah, I'm sure he won. Because uh, another story was, uh, like one of the bonding scenes between Tom Sawyer and uh, Alan Quartermain is they're like skeet shooting off of the, the deck of the submarine. And uh, Shane West was commenting that like he had a hard time holding up the rifle and like doing all the shooting and stuff. Cause it was, they were using a real gun and Sean Connery was doing it. No problem. when he was in his early seventies. Yeah. So he's a, he's a, he's a, he's a tough dude. No, for sure. Um, uh, yeah. I would love to see the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen like making of like, but like not like the the Blu-ray extra making of because no. it's also one of the first Blu-rays ever made. Is another fun <laughs> fact about this movie. No, but yeah, I want to get, like find everyone and get them now. Enough time has passed, and they have no reason to not be honest because obviously they don't have careers in the industry right so just get everyone truth serumed up to really like tell the stories of uh the making of this movie which seem infinitely more interesting 
than the actual movie. Like to, when you're at a point where you're, you can't even fake it for entertainment weekly that you're excited to be there. Right. It's funny too, uh, because it's not, uh, Stephen Norrington isn't the, the director of blade. Cause it was actually whoever directed blade Trinity had, a pretty infamous uh, nightmare of a filming situation with Wesley Snipes, where by the end of that movie, uh, Wesley Snipes was no longer speaking to the director. Like they I, would, I heard about that. Yeah. Yeah. They had to speak through intermediaries. <laughs> so it doesn't sound like this quite got to that level, but for sure. I mean, it, it sounds pretty bad. What would I seriously give me give me a documentary about uh, what the argument was between him and Sean Connery? Yeah, I the whole thing I think would be amazing just to watch that. Let's you know let's just stop this podcast and let's make that movie. Yeah, let's stop the podcast, make the movie. We'll we'll get out. All we need is Alan Moore to agree to sit down in front of a camera, and you already have gold. Right, you have at least ten minutes of pure unadulterated insane gold <laughs> seriously do yourself a favor if you listen to this whole thing and you don't know about alan moore just just skim that wikipedia like maybe do some google searching like read about alan moore who who does seem to dabble in the occult in sorcery uh and general you know uh bizarre insanity yeah. insanity <laughs> Like, and is one of the best comic book writers of like the last few decades for sure. And had a huge mm -hmm. influence on the industry and is at, like, that's how fascinating he is in that, like his resume alone, like speaks for itself of how talented he is. And it is still equally gets billing with how uh, unstable he is anytime he speaks. Yeah. He's one of he's a comic book writer that people who don't know comic book writers know the name of. Yeah. Like, you know, I mean, com like big comic book fans, you know, they can talk about all the different writers they like and everything, but the average schmo doesn't really follow who writes the books or anything like that. And, but most of them have probably heard of Alan Moore because of the fame of the stuff he's done. And be probably also to a lesser extent because <laughs> of how crazy he is. Yeah. No, fascinating guy uh, for sure. But yeah, so you know, we've, we definitely, okay. So where, where, where'd we land? We need a documentary about the making yes. of this because the behind the scenes stuff is gold. And like the, the damage that this movie left in its wake is fascinating. Did we get anything else? I will say like, I enjoyed kind of the tone of the movie. Like I thought like it was, it felt like really consistent. Um, and like it, it felt victorian like i thought that was yeah. like a kind of it didn't feel like modern spins on like everything felt it felt like kind of trumped up versions of all of those characters yeah. uh which i thought because i love the I, like i'm a huge fan of those books that are all these source materials like i, I really loved reading them um you know and, and we'll revisit them too from time to time because i love a lot of those stories so much so like that was kind of fun and that could have been a reason it failed because this is a lot of British people and Americans are notoriously xenophobic. I don't well, that, know. That is uh, supposedly why Tom Sawyer was put in this. Right. Uh, the movie was to help that, which is hilarious because the idea that uh, xenophobic Americans, what was going to sell them was Tom Sawyer being included. 
Uh, Which is a song by a Canadian band, so I don't yeah. even... <laughs> doesn't even but, make sense. But, uh, no, I, I honestly, for me, you know, being a nerdy, uh, you know, English major, I actually wish they... Like, I, to me, my favorite parts were... Was probably overall the Dorian Gray stuff. And, like, I, I liked when they had fun with what we knew about the characters. Yeah. And I, I honestly wish they had leaned into that a little bit more. Uh, you know, cause again, like Dorian Gray, I thought worked the best for me in terms of like, we know what his deal is. He's got the portrait, the portrait shows up in the movie, like, you know, it's good stuff. I mean, it's obviously, uh, you know, some dramatic license and I don't, I thought it just kept him from aging. If I'm remembering the story correctly, I, the, the fact that he can just absorb bullets, like they're nothing. <laughs> That he's essentially immortal because yeah. as long as the painting doesn't get damaged, he doesn't but it, get damaged. But it's true enough. Uh, I thought that painting, yeah, it's close enough. I thought the painting sucked. Uh, just yeah, <laughs> like I thought the painting should have been more fun uh, when it was revealed. But again, I'm saying I like that. Like some of the Jekyll and Hyde stuff, I thought worked pretty well. Like I think you could have uh, played more with the what we know about the characters and and like when that stuff hit, I thought that really did work. Yeah, I th- I, th- I liked a lot of the winks and nods to like the literary stuff, um, which you know isn't the average movie going audience probably too. So it's a little bit of a tough sell. But at the same time, like the movie didn't do anything that a lot of other movies haven't done better, and I think that's one of the things working against it. Um, yeah, and. and it- I- I, I was just gonna say it doesn't feel fun enough that like I don't want to see more in this world like it didn't sell me on the chemistry or like the world enough that I want to see a sequel necessarily right but at the same time like it, they it could have gotten a sequel and the sequel probably would have been fun who knows yeah. um the comic's great yeah <laughs> uh but yeah no I think I think the silver lining like you hate to say that it's that outside world around making the movie. That's just such a fascinating story. Cause it really is. Um, I think that's a big silver lining to it. Um, but I think like there are a lot of the fun winks and nods were yeah. the fun that they wanted to have with it. And I think that's definitely something worth it. Um, the invisible man special effects are good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. The hide special effects aren't. Um, yeah. I think the phantom should have sung. I'm just going to put it out there. You put the Phantom in there. At least he should have played some organ music. Right. At the very least, should have played some organ music. Done something other than just like wear the mask, kind of. Yeah. Like, you know, go all in. Mm hmm. I think that's been. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say lean more into the concept. I think this movie would have benefited from that all around of just like dial everything that you're doing up to a 10. Yeah. Uh, I think that's been a sort of a running theme in what we've seen as silver linings, which might say something about our personal tastes is that like swing hard. Yeah. You know, um, I think we've, we've awarded the, the silver linings to people that really swung hard at things. Um, Go big or and go home. Send your Fast and Furious franchise to space. That's what I say. <laughs> How has that not happened yet? <laughs> it's going to. I mean, Tom Cruise is going to beat them there, but... Uh, <laughs> uh, well, uh, so we did it. We yeah, um, um, Give the movie a look for yourself. See 
what we are. Stay tuned. Uh, coming in 2022 uh, will be the making of uh, mm-hmm. a, a Joel and Andy production. Yeah. Uh, we're going to do the, ma- the, the deep dive into the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. And remember, may all your gentlemen be extraordinary. <laughs> That's our sign off. We did it. <laughs> Silver Linings Playback is a production of Hobotrashcan.com. If you enjoyed the show, please rate or review it on Apple Podcasts. Hear more great shows on the Peak Sloth Podcast Network, like this one. Hey, this is Chris. And this is Joe from the Curioso Podcast. And we give our stamp of Curioso approval to the podcast that you're listening to right now. 